Let us turn uh, in our Bibles to a passage that we're not going to read initially, but we'll be looking at uh, as one of our first verses. That's Revelation 22. And we're looking tonight at what will we do in heaven? Of course, part two, our second study. And as we are sort of systematically studying this subject, we're not taking a a Bible passage and doing an exposition of it, but we're looking at various scriptures, and I hope you understand why that has to be the case when we take a subject like heaven that spans the whole of the scriptures. I couldn't help thinking today when I was in the study contemplating what to say tonight, how we started this series way back in January and how now, just before, probably one week from concluding it near the end of March, some of our dearest friends have entered heaven and have experienced the joy that we are combing the scriptures to foresee They're there now, experiencing it all. And faith has given way to sight. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And yet personally for me anyway, more lovely is the thought that for all of us, even where we are tonight, heaven is only a sigh away. Now maybe that doesn't comfort you at all, but uh, if your faith is rooted and grounded in Christ and you do have an eternal perspective. And you do see heaven the way it is, the way we ought to see it. That should be the case for any of us here. Of course, those of us who are saved and those of us who have come by repentant faith to God through Christ in the gospel, that ought to be our present possession. Now, we've covered a lot of ground over these weeks, and I just want to spend a few moments, because it's been so long since we've uh, been in this study, just reminding ourselves and recapping over what we have learned. In our first week, which was really an introduction, we learned why it is important to study heaven. Now, I hope that over these weeks that has really come to bear upon you, the vital nature of a knowledge of what we are going to experience, not only when we die as Christians, but when we enter into the eternal state of the new heaven and the new earth at some point in the future after our Lord comes. But we really narrowed it down as to why it is so important to study heaven to this one point overarching all. And that is that we need through the medium of the scriptures to imagine what heaven is like. And many of us have been impoverished concerning the anticipation of heaven because we have not learned to imagine through the various types, descriptions, metaphors, and literal descriptions that the Bible gives us what heaven is like. We haven't pictured it. And so our anticipation has been low. And I hope that I've convinced you how important it is to glean the Scriptures and to look very delicately at what the Scripture says regarding heaven. And that will engender within you an ability to imagine an illumination on your mind and heart of what heaven might be like. And therefore you will be given an anticipation in your heart. And a desire, I hope, 
to seek after heaven and eventually to be in heaven. This is echoed in the writings of Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was an English Puritan and he wrote what many regard to be the greatest treatise on heaven entitled The Saints Everlasting Rest which was published in 1649. When he wrote this book, or not really wrote it, but when he had the thoughts that are contained within it, he was in a very frail condition. Indeed, at 35 years of age, he suffered a total collapse in his physical health, and many feared, including himself, that he was going to die. And so, in wanting to prepare himself for death, for leaving this world, passing to the next, he began to meditate on heaven and its joys. And he wrote all the little thoughts down on bits of paper for his own benefit. And after he recovered unexpectedly from his illness, he put them all together and it uh, comprised this massive tome, which I would encourage you perhaps to get. And it'll take you a couple of years to read it if you read it properly. And he suggests to his readers in that book that they follow his own example. What was that? of meditating half an hour every day on heaven. I know that's probably unrealistic for most of us here this evening. But he did say these words, which are very instructive to us, thinking of this practice of his. He says, For want of this recourse, half an hour thinking of heaven, to thy soul is as a lamp not lighted. In other words, not to think of our eternal destiny, not to have a heavenly perspective in our minds and hearts is to be like a lamp or a candle that is not lighted. And there is something missing when we do not value the importance of thinking and anticipating heaven. That is why it is so important to study the subject. And regarding information that God gives us, in the Bible, which we spent much time looking at, Baxter says these words, It has pleased our Father to open this counsel and to let us know the very intent of his heart and to acquaint us with the eternal extent of his love and all this that our joy may be full and that we might live as heirs of such a kingdom. And shall we now overlook all as if he had revealed no such matter? Shall we live in earthly cares and sorrows as if we knew of no such thing and rejoice no more in these discoveries than if our Lord had never written it? Oh, that our hearts were as high as our hopes and our hopes as high as these infallible promises. And I want to re-echo that to you tonight. Oh, that our hearts were as high as our hopes and our hopes as high as these infallible promises. Oh, that as we put these words of God into our minds, that they would filter down into our hearts and lift us, as it were, into the heavenlies with such an ecstasy of our anticipation. That's what should happen. That is why it is important to study heaven. And then we saw the following week, that heaven is a physical place. And speaking not specifically of where we go when we die in Christ now, but of this eternal state later on after the second coming of the Lord, the new heaven and the new earth, we saw that the Bible tells us that this is an actual location that's found in time and space. And indeed, we are given a key to understanding a little bit about it by the gift of creation. 
that God has given us all around us in nature. And many of the figures and descriptions of that place are similar to what this world is like, of course, in an unfallen state. And thirdly, we saw also from God's word, I believe, where the dead are at this very moment. Not thinking of the future eternal state of a new heaven and a new earth, but thinking of what theologians have called an intermediate heaven. What Paul called the third heaven, or paradise. And we saw that though some have questions regarding uh, where the soul goes now when the believer dies, Scripture is clear in many regards concerning the, the consistency and the existence of the soul now in heaven. Paul said, it is to be with Christ. Philippians 1, 23. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. It is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And I think that answers any questions that, that one could have. And then we looked after that at the fact that the dead, how are they now? What is their state of existence? And we saw in that particular study that the dead are conscious. And being conscious, they remember the earth and they know what is happening on the earth to a certain extent. Not completely, but to a certain extent. And we even looked at the issue of the fact that they may well have the semblance of form. We couldn't go as far to say that they have a physical, literal body, but certainly those who had died in grace and gone to that place have appeared since in a physical manifestation that others could recognize. And then we concluded that particular night, again with Paul's words in Philippians 1.23, whatever we don't know about how the dead are now, we know this much, that to be with Christ, Paul says, is better by far. That should always be our full stop at the end of any questions we have concerning the subject. And then in our fifth week, we answered a very important question that many of you have asked at some time in your life, and many of you are asking poignantly this very evening, will we know one another and will we relate to one another in heaven? And we saw from the scriptures that it indicates that we will. It is God's intention with the human family that we should know reunion. And we know that we will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. That is one of many verses that indicate that we are made as re relating creatures to one another. We are made as those who need each other. Even the first man, the first, uh, uh, the first day of creation in the perfect Edenic paradise. He was not complete without a helper fit for him. And so reunion is in God's plan. And we see that recognition is necessary for reunion. We need to recognize one another in heaven. There were many verses to prove that fact. And I encourage you to get these recordings and scan them again. And also we saw that there will be not only recognition, but there will be relation. And though the marriage institution will cease to exist, the relationship that we have had, the relationship of love and intimacy will continue. And many family relationships and filial relationships will go on 
into eternity, we believe. And then we looked in our last study at what we will do in heaven. You remember, this was my own quote. I don't know how accurate it is, but you've heard the saying, variety is the spice of life. We concluded that variety is also the spice of eternal life. And we will not get bored in heaven. You will not get bored in heaven. We saw in our last study negatively what we will not do in heaven. There will be no sin. There will be no sorrow. And we spent a bit of time on that. And that's immensely encouraging. Some people think that all we can know about what we're going to do in heaven and what heaven will be like is what we're not going to do and what will not be there. That's far from the truth. We saw last time that the first thing, at least as we had it on our list, was we will serve the Lord. Revelation 22 that you've turned to just now, verse 3, His servants shall serve him. And we will have plenty of work to do in heaven. And that work will comprise of priestly service. And the wonder of it all is, as we serve the Lord, as we bring our lives in worship to him, our living sacrifices, though they be eternal life, there will be no failure. There will be no sense of inadequacy or weariness as we serve the Lord forever and will be able to stand back and without an ounce of pride know that we have offered to God a job well done. Something that you or I have never been able to do. And I'm looking forward to that day. Are you not? We will serve. And then we saw we will be served. In Luke 12, we looked at that parable where the Lord Jesus himself in that figure and story was teaching the disciples that he would serve them. And when the Lord comes back, he is describing how he will take us to heaven and it will be his delight in that place called heaven to serve his people. And he will be to us a servant forever. Now that is amazing. We think of his service as something that is involved only in his humiliation and his condescension. But that is far from the case. Though he was humiliated and took the place of a servant that he now does not have. We praise God that he is ever serving us as our great high priest at the right hand of God. For if he were not, we would not be able to come into the presence of God. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on until the day that he takes us to be with him in the air and then brings us to the marriage supper of the Lamb and then eventually we enter into the eternal state forever. It will be his constant, everlasting delight to serve us as his people. It's amazing to me. It tells us a lot of things. It certainly tells me that there's no shame in service. And as the Lord Jesus taught us, the greatest among you is the one who serves. And then not only will we serve and be served, but we will worship. And we saw that this is the where of heaven, not looking at a geographical location, but the atmosphere in which we will exist will be one of worship and wonder of wonders to us in this sphere and era. It will be perfect worship, unhindered worship, a worship that knows no distraction of a sinful thought 
or, or a temptation of the flesh or of the mind or of the will or heart. It will be pure worship in pure motives from pure hearts. And of course, that worship, as we saw, will be expressed in singing and music and in various other ways. And then we concluded in our last evening's study on the fact that that worship of the Lord as we fall prostrate before his throne in his presence will come to climax and crescendo in the moment when we will see God. Revelation 22 verse 4, And they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. Of course, we saw that, that God is spirit. He is invisible. And we believe that what this is speaking of is though we may see some manifestations of God the Father in his Shekinah glory, we believe that the Lord Jesus as the word pre-incarnate, as the Son, of course, also, but as the one who was made flesh and dwelt among us, as the one who testifies of God, the express image of his person, he will go on forever and eternity manifesting God to his people. And we will see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we reminded ourselves, and we need to do it again tonight as we look at this subject once more, that all of our studies in heaven we must make sure that our greatest and most joyous anticipation is seeing Jesus Christ, seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ, dwelling in his presence, lavishing in the light of his countenance, and our longing for heaven, no matter how great it is, must always be our longing for him. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's Lamb. Now we're going to look at another four occupations tonight. The first three really are occupations. The fourth is not in one sense because it is rest. The first we'll look at tonight is rain. We will reign in heaven. Second, we will learn in heaven. The third, we will fellowship in heaven. And then, as I said, the fourth, we will rest in heaven. Now, let's look at Revelation 22 again as we first of all consider how the Bible teaches that we will reign in heaven. Verse 5, And there shall be no night there, and they, sh and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Not only do we have the record of John here in Revelation 22, 5, that we as the saints of God shall reign with Christ forever and ever, but the Lord Jesus himself in some of his parables that he told when he was on the earth speaks of how he will assign certain authority and responsibility to his servants at his return. For instance, two that you would like to look at in your own leisure may be Luke 19 and Matthew 25. And we look at both of those uh, a little bit later. But the Lord's teaching in John's Revelation and various other passages of Scripture give us the impression that, 
that God will operate his eternal kingdom in a similar way that he operates his kingdom now in all of our hearts. Now what I mean by that is, we go to Paul's epistles, we see clearly that God by his spirit has gifted the church. And there are certain individuals who have particular gifts. All of us are gifted in some way. But not all can lead the church as elders. Not all can serve the church as deacons. Not all can preach, prophesy, and so on. We have different spiritual gifts. The Spirit is the Lord who gifts the church for the purpose of administrating the kingdom of God in our hearts now through the church. Now, as that is such, we believe that God in the eternal state, as well as the millennial reign of Christ, will delegate its operation to his own people in a similar sense. In other words, forever there will be a sphere of responsibility and authority in God's kingdom. Now, right away, that shows how foolish any idea of anti-authoritarianism may be. And authoritarianism is an ill repute today, and people balk at any authority. But we see that authority is not something that's going to be abolished or rules, or delegated responsibility. That's not going to disappear in eternity. This is something that God ordained before the fall, and something that will move on into forever. Now, the difference between the responsibility and levels of authority that are gifted to men and indeed women in, in the church of Jesus Christ where his kingdom is expressed now. The difference between the now and the then is simply that we will never fail in the delegated responsibilities that God gives to us. And I know we have struck this note before, but I can't help striking it. Someone who is continually... Rightly and at times wrongly whipping himself because of the sense of uh, inadequacy, failure, lack of pure and dedicated service to the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to think that there is a day coming when we will feel no more guilt, no more shame at falling short of the responsibilities that God has given to us? There's not only a difference between the now and the then regarding reigning, but there is also a relevance to the now when we contemplate the then. What am I talking about? Well, we see clearly from the New Testament that authority and faithfulness, authority and faithfulness are inextricably and indeed eternally linked the authority that God gives any of us is relative to our faithfulness in his service. And that will be the case in heaven. Our reigning is relative to our faithfulness now. And just to emphasize this to you, I want you to turn to the first parable I quoted from Matthew 25, just for a moment. Matthew 25, verse 14. 
Now I know there will be reward in the millennial kingdom and I know there will be a certain reigning in that, but this carries on further right into the eternal state. Verse 14 of Matthew 25, the Lord Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. And then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Underline that. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now, the unprofitable servant that just buried his talents and didn't make any money out of it, we see what happened to him and we see that this is how we conclude that this has more of a significance than simply just the millennial reign. Verse 29, For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is hell. But what the Lord is teaching us and what is relevant to us tonight is our authority in the eternal state as well as the millennial kingdom is relative to our faithfulness in the responsibilities that God has given us here on earth and in the body which is the church. That is very sobering, is it not? It's also relative to the suffering service that we are engaged in. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. So the more responsible we are, the more faithful we are, even in the face of adamant persecution down here on earth, the more responsible in authority we will be in glory. Again, look with me at Luke chapter 19. For another similar parable. Luke 19 verse 12. <clears throat> he said therefore. A certain nobleman went into a far country. To receive for himself a kingdom. And to return. And he called his ten servants. And delivered them ten pounds. And said unto them. Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. It came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thy authority over ten cities. 
The second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I kept laid up in an upkim. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thy wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I did not lay down, and reaping that I did not sow. And we'll finish the reading there. But again, the principle is the same. Our responsibility that we're given here and faithfulness in it is related directly to how we will reign with Christ. I wonder, do we ever think, I believe erroneously, on these terms? I wonder what responsibility I'll have in heaven. Do you ever think like that? wonder what I'll be doing, where I'll be reigning, what authority I'll have. Well, in one sense, you don't need to wonder about it. You don't need to surmise or even wait because, theoretically, what we are doing now or what we are not doing now will determine what we will do then. Think of it, our life. The life that you live today and in your history of existence is putting into Christ's mouth word by word what he will say to you on the day he judges you. That's one reason we need to meditate and anticipate heaven because this world system is robbing us of our heavenly reward Because the world that we love and all of its materialism and affluence and sensuality. Yes, as believers, our love affair with this age and system is robbing us. of What we could know in heaven one day if the earth down here wasn't so big and so bright. We need to get a perspective like Paul when he said at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And I know he was an apostle, but did he have a red telephone line to heaven to know that he was going to get this crown and this reward? Of course he didn't. He knew it because of the life that he sowed in spiritual death that he would reap the reward. That's how he knew. You can know and I can know. If we live for eternity, Whitfield, the great evangelist, said, Oh, could I always live for eternity, preach for eternity, pray for eternity, and speak for eternity. I want to see God only. That was his desire. If we do that, Jesus will say to us, as he said in Luke 12 and verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Isn't that amazing? How will we reign? Well, I don't really know that. 
Some people think we'll explore an unknown corner of the universe. C.S. Lewis suggests we'll govern a distant star. I don't know about that. But I'm pretty sure from the word of God that we'll reign by serving others and serving the servant king, the servant forever. But we've got to move on. We're going to learn in heaven. I don't know if I'll get through all this tonight. But uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12 says, For we now see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. I haven't got time to go into this, but that's got nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. Though we will be in heaven perfectly moral, there is no suggestion whatsoever in the whole of the word of God that we're going to know everything. I think that's a common misconception that people have. In fact, if you remember when we looked in Revelation 6 and verse 10, the souls of the martyrs under the altar were crying unto God for vengeance and saying in verse 10, How long? They didn't know how long it was going to be until they were avenged, the righteous blood. And we've got to realize that not knowing everything is not a flaw. Did you hear that? Not knowing everything is not a flaw. That is what it is to be human and not be God. So it is very foolish for us to think that in heaven we're going to know everything because if we knew everything, that would make us God. Omniscience, to be all-knowing, is a divine attribute. He alone is the high and lofty one, Isaiah says, who inhabits eternity. He alone is the one who has known the, the mind of the Lord. His spirit alone has been his counselor, Romans eleven thirty four. And so in heaven, there's an awful lot of learning that we're going to have to do. And I believe the Lord Jesus, as he trained his disciples down here on earth, he will be our great instructor, instructor in heaven. He will teach us. He will lead us into further light and truth. You might say, well, what will he teach us? Well, he'll teach us many things, probably regarding the new heaven and the new earth. But I believe the primary lesson that he will teach us is as the redeemed people of God to love the Lord our God as we have never loved him before. I believe he's going to teach us more about God and more about his inexhaustible grace. Chapter verse, well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Paul says, God has raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to warn us through Christ Jesus. Now that word show there is literally reveal. And it speaks that there's going to be an eternal revelation of God's grace toward us. And Christ and the Spirit are going to continually unravel for us the wonder of our eternal salvation. And all eternity will not be enough time to show us it. Isn't that amazing? Well, you're going to learn all right. 
And even Ephesians 3, verse 18, it tells us that the Paul's desire and prayer is, and this will be fully consummated and realized only in heaven, that we may be able to comprehend what, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, we're going to find out and learn that in God is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That God is even greater than eternity. And learning of him will exhaust all the time and the energies that we will have. As Jonathan Edwards put it, there will never be a time when there is no more glory for the redeemed to discover and enjoy. We will never stop learning about God and never stop learning about the wonder of God's grace. Now maybe you're doubting this. If it's new to you, you should be questioning it. Uh, learning, maybe you don't like that idea, you didn't like school, and couldn't wait to get out and all the rest. Well, we often think that the devil in, in, invented learning. God invented learning. Just like he did working and thinking. And intellectual curiosity is not part of the curse that came upon us through the fall of, of mankind. You look at the wonder of a little child who is learning. Our son at the minute, Noah, everything he sees, he's going, oh. Like this. It's wonderful to see. Now that doesn't come from the devil, does it? God has put this inquisitiveness in our hearts. And it even says of Jesus, the Christ of God, that he learned and he grew in knowledge. There is a pleasure in learning. A God-intended pleasure that he is going to permit us to partake in for all eternity. Martin Luther understood this because he said, if God had all the answers in his right hand and the struggle to reach them in his left hand, I would choose his left hand. Now, why did he say that? We want to know all the answers. He said it because he understood the pleasure in learning. The pleasure in discovering, the pleasure in finding things out, coming to the knowledge of the truth, being led by God. Now here's my challenge to you, I think it's very clear, we will learn in heaven. But why not start down here? Learning about God, learning about eternity, learning about heaven at your home. And the implication of this therefore is... That we will carry into eternity whatever we have learned here in time. Hmm. Banish the idea, oh, it doesn't matter what I do here now, everything will be alright in the end. Not the way we think about heaven? Well, that's correct in one sense, but that's nearly... Uh, a conception in the mind that, that down here doesn't matter. And we, we find out that what we're being taught as we contemplate heaven in the New Testament is the exact opposite. That down here matters immensely to what up there will be like for us. That's the common thread through it all of this truth on heaven. In every way now relates to them. We'll reign, we'll learn. Seventhly, you didn't think I'd done seven tonight. 
No, it's adding the two together. Fellowship. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 tell us that we are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Whatever way you interpret those verses, there's a lot of people going to be in heaven, and a lot of creatures there. And there's going to be great fellowship. And no wonder heaven will be a place of never-ending learning. Just getting to know everyone will seem to take all eternity. The redeemed. These great angelic creatures. Now there are many passages in the New Testament which speak of the final fellowship that all believers will have in heaven. And all of them point towards this truth. That we will forever interact with, as Revelation 7 says, a great multitude which no man could number out of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. And again, it's worth mentioning that it would be ridiculous if you were having fellowship with all these people and couldn't know them or recognize them. There will be a fellowship there. Now, here's another challenge. This is so practical. Remember the then relates to the now and the now to the then. How are you fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ down here? How goes it with you? Why don't we practice some of this heavenly unity of fellowship on the earth? Before you say it, yes, it's unity and truth. I know all that, and that's where the ecumenists get it wrong. It's unity in God's truth. But here's a question I'm going to ask you, and I want you to think about this. And don't be putting it in the question box now. What truths do we unite on? What truths do we unite on? Fundamental truth? Of course. What about secondary truth? Of course, every individual church, don't misunderstand me, has to have agreement on secondary issues in order to operate effectively and efficiently. But I, I believe in the light of heaven and the light of many scriptures in the New Testament on the unity of the body that it is a travesty, a travesty, how we have allowed relatively unimportant issues to divide us. I have never found anyone who I agree with completely or anybody who agrees with me completely. Sometimes I can't find anybody who agrees with me half the time. That's why it's so difficult when we mount up all these little criterion for fellowship. Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 11 that they would be one as the Father and the Son were one. That is the church, that is his people. Now I've heard all the explanations. Oh, that's the global unity of the mystic body of the church. And I know we're all united in Christ. Even those in heaven and on earth who are in Christ are united together. But we're the ones who, who are very quick to say in spiritual things, ah, but there's got to be a practical outworking. Aren't we? Oh, there has to be the practice. Doctrine and practice. 
Justification's not enough. Sanctification has to come. And it's only when the sanctification comes that it proves the justification was valid and you will achieve the glorification in heaven. We say that, don't we? Faith without works is dead. That's what that is. So you're not allowed to say, oh, this is only a spiritual unity, but we can fight a bit out with one another down here on earth. No, it doesn't work like that. No. And we've got to grapple with this. It's an interesting question. I maybe put this one in the question box and see if I can answer it. Will we all agree on absolutely everything in heaven? That's a good one, isn't it? Don't say it's a stupid question. It's not. Will we agree on absolutely everything in heaven? If deliberation and debate and reasoning, is that not part of the process of learning? Is it not? You have to think about a thing. We're not talking about moral right or wrong here. We're, we're talking about all sorts of issues that will be in eternity. Or will we be like little robotic know-it-alls? We'll know right and wrong all the time. We'll not even like to think about it. Now, I know some of you have your reward already. That's maybe the way you operate down here. But our problem is we've made the mistake of of believing that unity equals uniformity. That's where we fall down. There's going to be diversity in heaven out of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. That's the strength of both the church militant on the earth and I believe the church triumphant in heaven. You think about that one. Will we not have to think and even discuss as we learn about the wonder of the universe in heaven as God reveals certain things to us? I have to move on before I get into even more trouble. The last point is this. We'll rest in heaven. Praise God, we will rest. Revelation 14 is the verse I want you to turn to. Revelation 14 and verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. Now, when we go to the very beginning of the Bible, we find that the, the rest principle is enshrined in the Sabbath principle. Incidentally, that was a principle that was enshrined before the fall. And God rested, and we are to rest. And after the fall, that same rest principle is found in the law of Moses and in the practices of the nation of Israel. And the Bible says in Hebrews that there's a rest now appointed unto the children of God in the church. And Revelation now tells us that there will be a rest in heaven. Now, we know from what we have learned already that the rest that we will experience in heaven clearly is not due to the absence of work. For we will work, we will serve, do all sorts of things in heaven, we will learn. But it's, it's a rest like that which was in Eden. There was plenty to do in Eden. There was responsibility and authority given to Adam and Eve, but they had to also rest. And we have seen in recent studies that the work that we will do in heaven will not exhaust 
our energies. Now, don't ask me to explain it all. But I feel personally that when we serve the Lord and labor in our energies, our energies will continually and perennially be replenished and rejuvenated. In other words, we'll never go tired or weary. So we join these two things together. We will be busier than we have ever been in heaven, and yet we will be more rested than we have ever been. Is that not perfect? Not be lounging around all day, but be working and resting, working and resting. You might say, well, why do you need to rest if you don't grow tired? Well, look at verse 11 of chapter 14 of Revelation to contrast those who are in hell. It says about them, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. That tells us something of the type of rest that this is. It's the opposite to the unrest that is in hell. And Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. You know what this rest is? It is the absolute contrast to all the unrest that we find in this life. We have entered a rest by faith, Hebrews says. There is a rest appointed unto the people of God. And though we can experience this by faith now in our hearts, one day we're going to realize it in heaven with all our faculties. Our pain will all be over. We'll sin and sigh no more. Behind us all of sorrow, naught but joy before. What causes you toil? What causes you pain? What causes you unrest? Turmoil of mind and heart. Is it disease, illness? Weakness of mind, of emotion. Is it separation? Is it bereavement? Praise God we can enter by faith the spiritual reality of this rest and peace now. But even when we do that and are most triumphant in our Christian faith, not all the remnants of the fall can be erased here and now. But they will be then. In that perfect rest. Needless to say, that's why endless litanies and going through laborious rites to attempt to achieve rest for the dead. It's all pointless. Praying for the dead, baptizing for the dead, or even saying, may he rest in peace. If a man or a woman rests in Christ, they couldn't rest in any more peace. A little girl was taking an evening walk with her father and Wondering as she looked up to the stars, she exclaimed, Oh, Daddy, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the right side be like? I know you all like a good rest down here. I do anyway. But what will that rest be like up there? Richard Baxter, who I quoted at the beginning in his book, and I finish with this. The saints' everlasting rest puts it better than I ever could. And I'm just going to quote him. It's quite lengthy, but listen and let it thrill your heart tonight. Rest. How sweet a word is this to mine ears. 
Methinks the sound doth turn to substance, and having entered at the ear doth possess my brain, and thence descendeth down to my very heart. Methinks I feel it stir and work, and that through all my parts and powers, but with a various work on my various parts, to my wearied senses and languid spirits it seems a quietening, powerful opiate. To my dulled powers it is a spirit and life. To my dark eyes it is both eye salve and a perspective. To my taste it is sweetness. To mine ears it is melody. To my hands and feet it is strength and nimbleness. Methinks I feel it digest as it proceeds and increase my need of heat and moisture and lying as a reviving cordial at my heart, from thence doth send forth lively spirits, which beat through all the pulse of my soul. Rest, not as the stone that rests on the earth, nor as these clods of flesh shall rest in the grave, so our beasts must rest as well as we, nor is it the satisfying of our fleshly lust, nor such rest as the carnal world desireth. No, no, we have another kind of rest than these. Rest we shall from all our labors, which were but the way and means to rest. But yet that is the smallest part. O oh, blessed rest, where we shall never rest day or night, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabbath when we shall rest from sin, but not from worship, from suffering and sorrow, but not from solace. O blessed day when I shall rest with God, when I shall rest in knowing, loving, rejoicing, and praising, when my perfect soul and body together shall in these perfect things perfectly enjoy the most perfect God when God also, who is love itself, shall perfectly love me, yes, and rest in his love to me, as I shall rest in my love to him, and rejoice over me with joy and singing, as I shall rejoice in him. Do you think he got a glimpse of glory? I hope over these weeks I have at least started you to think about heaven. In the very least caused you to imagine heaven so that your imagination might give way to anticipation and the joy of the Lord might spread abroad in your heart. Oh, Emmanuel, we long for your land. We long for that life that springs eternal. We long to be in your presence. And yet there is so much for us to do down here. But Lord, let us do it in the light of that great eternity. Let us not miss heaven for the sight of earth. Lord, thank you for this wonderful truth that you have revealed to us to our children's children. May we cherish it. And may it make a lasting difference to 
our lives now and our lives to come. Amen.